Chapter 5, Part 2 of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Turnell. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter 5, Part 2. Baya Blanca. A very singular little bird, Tinochorus rumicivorus, is here common. In its habits and general appearance, it nearly equally partakes of the characters, different as they are, of the quail and snipe. The tinichorus is found in the whole of southern South America, wherever there are sterile plains or open dry pasture land. It frequents in pairs or small flocks the most desolate places, where scarcely another living creature can exist. Upon being approached they squat close, and then are very difficult to be distinguished from the ground. When feeding they walk rather slowly, with their legs wide apart. They dust themselves in roads and sandy places, and frequent particular spots where they may be found day after day. Like partridges, they take wing in a flock. In all these respects, in the muscular gizzard adapted for vegetable food, in the arched beak and fleshy nostrils, short legs and form of foot, the tinichorus has a close affinity with quails. But as soon as the bird is seen flying, its whole appearance changes, the long pointed wings so different from those in the gallinaceous order, the irregular manner of flight, and plaintive cry uttered at the moment of rising, recall the idea of a snipe. The sportsmen of the beagle unanimously called it the short-billed snipe. To this genus, or rather to the family of the waders, its skeleton shows that it is really related. The tinichorus is closely related to some other South American birds. The species of the genus Atagus are in almost every respect ptarmigans in their habits. One lives in Tierra del Fuego, above the limits of the forest land, and the other just beneath the snow line on the Cordillera of central Chile. A bird of another closely allied genus, Chionis alba, is an inhabitant of the Antarctic regions. It feeds on seaweed and shells on the tidal rocks. Although not web-footed, from some unaccountable habit it is frequently met with far out at sea. This small family of birds is one of those which, from its varied relations to other families, although at present offering only difficulties to the systematic naturalist, ultimately may assist in revealing the grand scheme, common to the present and past ages, on which organized beings have been created. The genus Funarius contains several species, all small birds living on the ground, and inhabiting open dry countries. In structure they cannot be compared to any European form. Ornithologists have generally included them among the creepers, although opposed to that family in every habit. The best-known species is the common oven-bird of La Plata, the casara, or housemaker of the Spaniards. The nest, once it takes its name, is placed in the most exposed situations, as on the top of a post, a bare rock, or on a cactus. It is composed of mud and bits of straw, and has strong thick walls. In shape it precisely resembles an oven, or depressed beehive. The opening is large and arched, and directly in front, within the nest, there is a partition, which reaches nearly to the roof, thus forming a passage or antechamber to the true nest. Another and smaller species of Funarius, Funarius cunicalarius, resembles the ovenbird in the general reddish tint of its plumage, and in a peculiar shrill reiterated cry, and in an odd manner of running by starts. From its affinity, the Spaniards call it casarita, or little house-builder, although its nidification is quite different. 
The casarita builds its nest at the bottom of a narrow cylindrical hole, which is said to extend horizontally to nearly six feet underground. Several of the country people told me that, when boys, they had attempted to dig out the nest, but had scarcely ever succeeded in getting to the end of the passage. The bird chooses any low bank of firm sandy soil by the side of a road or stream. Here, at Bahia Blanca, the walls round the houses are built of hardened mud, and I noticed that one which enclosed a courtyard where I lodged was bored through by round holes in a score of places. On asking the owner the cause of this, he bitterly complained of the little casarita, several of which I afterwards observed at work. It is rather curious to find how incapable these birds must be of acquiring any notion of thickness, for although they were constantly flitting over the low wall, they continued vainly to bore through it, thinking it an excellent bank for their nests. I do not doubt that each bird, as often as it came to daylight on the opposite side, was greatly surprised at the marvelous fact. I have already mentioned nearly all the mammalia common in this country. Of armadillos, three species occur, namely, the Decipus minutus, or peachy, the D. villosus, or peludo, and the apar. The first extends ten degrees farther south than any other kind. A fourth species, the mulita, does not come as far south as Bahia Blanca. The four species have nearly similar habits. The peludo, however, is nocturnal, while the others wander by day over the open plains, feeding on beetles, larvae, roots, and even small snakes. The apar, commonly called matako, is remarkable by having only three movable bands, the rest of its tessellated covering being nearly inflexible. It has the power of rolling itself into a perfect sphere, like one kind of English woodlouse. In this state it is safe from the attack of dogs, for the dog not being able to take the hole in its mouth tries to bite one side, and the ball slips away. The smooth hard covering of the matako offers a better defense than the sharp spines of the hedgehog. The pishi prefers a very dry soil, and the sand dunes near the coast, where for many months it can never taste water, is its favorite resort. It often tries to escape notice by squatting close to the ground. In the course of a day's ride near Baia Blanca, several were generally met with. The instant one was perceived, it was necessary, in order to catch it, almost to tumble off one's horse. For in the soft soil the animal burrowed so quickly that its hinder quarters would almost disappear before one could alight. It seems almost a pity to kill such nice little animals, for, as a gaucho said while sharpening his knife on the back of one, son tan mansos, they are so quiet. Of reptiles there are many kinds. One snake, a trigonocephalus or cophius, subsequently called by Monsieur Bibron T. crepitans, from the size of the poison channel in its fangs, must be very deadly. Cuvier, in opposition to some other naturalists, makes this a subgenus of the rattlesnake, and intermediate between it and the viper. In confirmation of this opinion, I observed a fact, which appears to me very curious and instructive, as showing how every character, even though it may be in some degree independent of structure, has a tendency to vary by slow degrees. The extremity of the tail of this snake is terminated by a point which is very slightly enlarged and as the animal glides along it constantly vibrates the last inch and this part striking against the dry grass and brushwood produces a rattling noise which can be distinctly heard at the distance of six feet as often as the animal was irritated or surprised its tail was shaken and the vibrations were extremely rapid even as long as the body retained its irritability a tendency to this habitual movement was evident 
This trigonocephalus has, therefore, in some respects, the structure of a viper, with the habits of a rattlesnake, the noise, however, being produced by a simpler device. The expression of this snake's face was hideous and fierce. The pupil consisted of a vertical slit in a mottled and coppery iris. The jaws were broad at the base, and the nose terminated in a triangular projection. I do not think I ever saw anything more ugly, excepting, perhaps, some of the vampire bats. I imagine this repulsive aspect originates from the features being placed in positions with respect to each other somewhat proportional to those of the human face, and thus we obtain a scale of hideousness. Amongst the Batrachian reptiles I found only one little toad, Phreniscus nigricans, which was most singular from its color. If we imagine, first, that it had been steeped in the blackest ink, and then, when dry, allowed to crawl over a board freshly painted with the brightest vermilion so as to color the soles of its feet and parts of its stomach, a good idea of its appearance will be gained. If it had been an unnamed species, surely it ought to have been called Diabolicus, for it is a fit toad to preach in the ear of Eve. Instead of being nocturnal in its habits, as other toads are, and living in damp, obscure recesses, it crawls during the heat of the day about the dry sand hillocks and arid plains, where not a single drop of water can be found. It must necessarily depend on the dew for its moisture. And this probably is absorbed by the skin, for it is known that these reptiles possess great powers of cutaneous absorption. At Maldonado I found one in a situation nearly as dry as at Bahia Blanca, and, thinking to give it a great treat, carried it to a pool of water. Not only was the little animal unable to swim, but I think without help it would soon have been drowned. Of lizards there were many kinds, but only one, Proctotridus multimaculatus, remarkable from its habits. It lives on the bare sand near the sea-coast, and from its mottled color, the brownish scales being speckled with white, yellowish-red, and dirty blue, can hardly be distinguished from the surrounding surface. When frightened, it attempts to avoid discovery by feigning death, with outstretched legs, depressed body, and closed eyes. If further molested, it buries itself with great quickness in the loose sand. This lizard, from its flattened body and short legs, cannot run quickly. I will here add a few remarks on the hibernation of animals in this part of South America. When we first arrived at Bahia Blanca, September 7, 1832, we thought nature had granted scarcely a living creature to this sandy and dry country. By digging, however, in the ground, several insects, large spiders, and lizards were found in a half-torpid state. On the 15th, a few animals began to appear, and by the 18th, three days from the equinox, everything announced the commencement of spring. The plants were ornamented by the flowers of a pink wood-sorrel, wild peas, onotherae, and geraniums, and the birds began to lay their eggs. Numerous lamellicorn and heteromerous insects, the latter remarkable for their deeply sculptured bodies, were slowly crawling about, while the lizard tribe, the constant inhabitants of a sandy soil, darted about in every direction. During the first eleven days, whilst nature was dormant, the mean temperature taken from observations made every two hours on board the Beagle was fifty-one degrees, and in the middle of the day the thermometer seldom ranged above fifty-five. On the eleven succeeding days, in which all living things became so animated, the mean was fifty-eight degrees, and the range in the middle of the day between sixty and seventy. 
Here then an increase of seven degrees in mean temperature, but a greater one of extreme heat, was sufficient to awake the functions of life. At Montevideo, from which we have just before sailed, in the twenty-three days included between the twenty-sixth of July and the nineteenth of August, the mean temperature from two hundred and seventy-six observations was fifty-eight point four degrees, the mean hottest day being sixty-five point five degrees, and the coldest forty-six degrees. The lowest point to which the thermometer fell was forty-one point five degrees, and occasionally in the middle of the day it rose to sixty-nine or seventy degrees. Yet with this high temperature almost every beetle, several genera of spiders, snails, and land-shells, toads, and lizards, were all lying torpid beneath stones. But we have seen that at Bahia Blanca, which is four degrees southward, and therefore with a climate only a very little colder, this same temperature, with a rather less extreme heat, was sufficient to awake all orders of animated beings. This shows how nicely the stimulus required to arouse hibernating animals is governed by the usual climate of the district, and not by the absolute heat. It is well known that within the tropics the hibernation, or more properly, estivation of animals, is determined not by the temperature, but by the times of drought. Near Rio de Janeiro I was at first surprised to observe that, a few days after some little depressions had been filled with water, they were peopled by numerous full-grown shells and beetles which must have been lying dormant. Humboldt has related the strange accident of a hovel having been erected over a spot where a young crocodile lay buried in the hardened mud. He adds, quote, The Indians often find enormous boas, which they call uhi, or water serpents, in the same lethargic state. To reanimate them, they must be irritated or wetted with water. I will only mention one other animal. A zoophyte, I believe Virgularia patagonica, a kind of sea pen. It consists of a thin, straight, fleshy stem with alternate rows of polypi on either side, and surrounding an elastic stony axis, varying in length from eight inches to two feet. The stem at one extremity is truncate, but at the other is terminated by a veriform fleshy appendage. The stony axis, which gives strength to the stem, may be traced at this extremity into a mere vessel filled with granular matter. At low water, hundreds of these zoophytes might be seen, projecting like stubble, with a truncate end upwards, a few inches above the surface of the muddy sand. When touched or pulled, they suddenly drew themselves in with force, so as nearly or quite to disappear. By this action, the highly elastic axis must be bent at the lower extremity, where it is naturally slightly curved, and I imagine it is by this elasticity alone that the zoophyte is enabled to rise again through the mud. Each polypus, though closely united to its brethren, has a distinct mouth, body, and tentacula. Of these polypi, in a large specimen there must be many thousands, yet we see that they act by one movement— they have also one central axis connected with a system of obscure circulation, and the ova are produced in an organ distinct from the separate individuals. In a footnote, the cavities leading from the fleshy compartments of the extremity were filled with a yellow pulpy matter, which, examined under a microscope, presented an extraordinary appearance. The mass consisted of rounded, semi-transparent, irregular grains, aggregated together into particles of various sizes. All such particles and the separate grains possessed the power of rapid movement, generally revolving around different axes, but sometimes progressive. 
The movement was visible with a very weak power, but even with the highest its cause could not be perceived. It was very different from the circulation of the fluid in the elastic bag, containing the thin extremity of the axis. On other occasions, when dissecting small marine animals beneath the microscope, I have seen particles of pulpy matter, some of large size, as soon as they were disengaged, commence revolving. I have imagined, I know not with how much truth, that this granulopulpy matter was in process of being converted into ova. Certainly in this zoophyte such appeared to be the case. End footnote. Well may one be allowed to ask, what is an individual? It is always interesting to discover the foundation of the strange tales of the old voyagers, and I have no doubt but that the habits of this virgularia explain one such case. Captain Lancaster, in his voyage in 1601, narrates that on the sea-sands of the island of Sombrero in the East Indies, he, quote, found a small twig growing up like a young tree, and on offering to pluck it up, it shrinks down to the ground and sinks unless held very hard. On being plucked up, a great worm is found to be its root, and as the tree groweth in greatness, so doth the worm diminish, and as soon as the worm is entirely turned into a tree, it rooteth in the earth, and so becomes great. This transformation is one of the strangest wonders that I saw in all my travels, for if this tree is plucked up while young, and the leaves and bark stripped off, it becomes a hard stone when dry, much like white coral. Thus is this worm twice transformed into different natures. Of course we gathered and brought home many. During my stay at Bahia Blanca, while waiting for the Beagle, the place was in a constant state of excitement, from rumors of wars and victories, between the troops of Rosas and the wild Indians. One day an account came that a small party forming one of the postas on the line to Buenos Aires had been found all murdered. The next day three hundred men arrived from the Colorado under the command of Commandant Miranda. A large portion of these men were Indians, mansos or tame, belonging to the tribe of the Cacique Bernantio. They passed the night here, and it was impossible to conceive anything more wild and savage than the scene of their bivouac. Some drank till they were intoxicated. Others swallowed the steaming blood of the cattle slaughtered for their suppers, and then, being sick from drunkenness, they cast it up again, and were besmeared with filth and gore. Nam simul explitus dapibus vinoque sepultus, servisim inflexum posuit, jacuitque per antrum, immensus sanium eructans, ac frusta cruenta, per somum comixta marrow. In the morning they started for the scene of the murder, with orders to follow the rastros, or track, even if it led them to Chile. We subsequently heard that the wild Indians had escaped into the great Pampas, and from some cause the track had been missed. One glance at the rastro tells these people a whole history. Supposing they examine the track of a thousand horses, they will soon guess the number of mounted ones by seeing how many have cantered. By the depth of the other impressions, whether any horses were loaded with cargoes. By the irregularity of the footsteps, how far tired. By the manner in which the food has been cooked, whether the pursued traveled in haste. By the general appearance, how long it has been since they passed. 
they consider a rastro of ten days or a fortnight quite recent enough to be hunted out. We also heard that Miranda struck from the west end of the Sierra Ventana, in a direct line to the island of Cholechel, situated seventy leagues up the Rio Negro. This is a distance of between two and three hundred miles, through a country completely unknown. What other troops in the world are so independent? With the sun for their guide, mare's flesh for food, their saddle-cloths for beds, as long as there is a little water, these men would penetrate to the end of the world. A few days afterwards I saw another troop of these banditti-like soldiers start on an expedition against a tribe of Indians at the small Salinas, who had been betrayed by a prisoner cacique. The Spaniard who had brought the orders for this expedition was a very intelligent man. He gave me an account of the last engagement at which he was present. Some Indians, who had been taken prisoners, gave information of a tribe living north of the Colorado. Two hundred soldiers were sent, and they first discovered the Indians by a cloud of dust from their horses' feet as they chanced to be travelling. The country was mountainous and wild, and it must have been far in the interior, for the Cordillera were in sight. The Indians, men, women, and children, were about one hundred and ten in number, and they were nearly all taken or killed, for the soldiers saber every man. The Indians are now so terrified that they offered no resistance in a body, but each flies, neglecting even his wife and children but when overtaken, like wild animals, they fight against any number to the last moment. One dying Indian seized with his teeth the thumb of his adversary, and allowed his own eye to be forced out sooner than relinquish his hold. Another, who was wounded, feigned death, keeping a knife ready to strike one more fatal blow. My informer said, when he was pursuing an Indian, the man cried out for mercy, at the same time that he was covertly loosing the bolus from his waist, meaning to whirl it round his head and so strike his pursuer. Quote, I, however, struck him with my saber to the ground, and then got off my horse, and cut his throat with my knife. Unquote. This is a dark picture. But how much more shocking is the unquestionable fact that all the women who appear above twenty years old are massacred in cold blood. When I exclaimed that this appeared rather inhuman, he answered, quote, Why, what can be done? They breed so. Unquote. Everyone here is fully convinced that this is the most just war, because it is against barbarians. Who would believe in this age that such atrocities could be committed in a Christian, civilized country? The children of the Indians are saved, to be sold or given away as servants, or rather slaves, for as long a time as the owners can make them believe themselves slaves. But I believe in their treatment there is little to complain of. In the battle four men ran away together. They were pursued one was killed, and the other three were taken alive. They turned out to be messengers or ambassadors from a large body of Indians, united in the common cause of defense near the Cordillera. The tribe to which they had been sent was on the point of holding a grand council, 
The feast of mare's flesh was ready, and the dance prepared. In the morning the ambassadors were to have returned to the Cordillera. They were remarkably fine men, very fair, above six feet high, and all under thirty years of age. The three survivors, of course, possessed very valuable information, and to extort this they were placed in a line. The two first being questioned answered, No se, I do not know, and were one after the other shot. The third also said, No se, adding, quote, Fire, I am a man, and can die. Not one syllable would they breathe to injure the united cause of their country. The conduct of the above-mentioned cacique was very different. He saved his life by betraying the intended plan of warfare, and the point of union in the Andes. It was believed that they were already six or seven hundred Indians together, and that in summer their numbers would be doubled. Ambassadors were to have been sent to the Indians at the small Salinas, near Bahia Blanca, whom I have mentioned that the same cacique had betrayed. The communication, therefore, between the Indians extends from the Cordillera to the coast of the Atlantic. General Rosas's plan is to kill all stragglers, and having driven the remainder to a common point, to attack them in a body, in the summer, with the assistance of the Chilenos. This operation is to be repeated for three successive years. I imagine the summer is chosen as the time for the main attack, because the plains are then without water, and the Indians can only travel in particular directions. The escape of the Indians to the south of the Rio Negro, where in such a vast unknown country they would be safe, is prevented by a treaty with the Tehuelches to this effect that Rosas pays them so much to slaughter every Indian who passes to the south of the river. But if they fail in so doing, they themselves are to be exterminated. The war is waged chiefly against the Indians near the Cordillera, for many of the tribes on this eastern side are fighting with Rosas. The general, however, like Lord Chesterfield, thinking that his friends may in a future day become his enemies, always places them in the front ranks, so that their numbers may be thinned. Since leaving South America, we have heard that this war of extermination completely failed. Among the captive girls taken in the same engagement, there were two very pretty Spanish ones, who had been carried away by the Indians when young, and could now only speak the Indian tongue. From their account, they must have come from Salta, a distance in a straight line of nearly one thousand miles. This gives one a grand idea of the immense territory over which the Indians roam. Yet, great as it is, I think there will not, in another half-century, be a wild Indian northward of the Rio Negro. The warfare is too bloody to last, the Christians killing every Indian, and the Indians doing the same by the Christians. It is melancholy to trace how the Indians have given way before the Spanish invaders. Shirdel says that in 1535, when Buenos Aires was founded, there were villages containing two and three thousand inhabitants. Even in Falconer's time, 1750, the Indians made inroads as far as Luxan, Areco, and Arrecife. But now they are driven beyond the Salado. Not only have whole tribes been exterminated, 
But the remaining Indians have become more barbarous. Instead of living in large villages, and being employed in the arts of fishing, as well as of the chase, they now wander about the open plains, without home or fixed occupation. I heard also some account of an engagement which took place, a few weeks previously to the one mentioned, at Cholechel. This is a very important station on account of being a pass for horses, and it was, in consequence, for some time the headquarters of a division of the army. When the troops first arrived there they found a tribe of Indians, of whom they killed twenty or thirty. The cacique escaped in a manner which astonished every one. The chief Indians always have one or two picked horses, which they keep ready for any urgent occasion. On one of these, an old white horse, the cacique sprung, taking with him his little son. The horse had neither saddle nor bridle. To avoid the shots, the Indian rode in the peculiar method of his nation, namely with an arm round the horse's neck, and one leg only on its back. Thus hanging on one side, he was seen patting the horse's head and talking to him. The pursuers urged every effort in the chase. The commandant three times changed his horse, but all in vain. The old Indian father and his son escaped and were free. What a fine picture one can form in one's mind! The naked, bronze-like figure of the old man with his little boy, riding like a mesepa on a white horse, thus leaving far behind him the host of his pursuers. I saw one day a soldier striking fire with a piece of flint, which I immediately recognized as having been part of the head of an arrow. He told me it was found near the island of Cholechel, and that they are frequently picked up there. It was between two and three inches long, and therefore twice as large as those now used in Tierra del Fuego. It was made of an opaque cream-colored flint, but the point and barbs had been intentionally broken off. It is well known that no pompous Indians now use bows and arrows. I believe a small tribe in Banda Oriental must be accepted, but they are widely separated from the pompous Indians, and border close on those tribes that inhabit the forest and live on foot. It appears, therefore, that these arrowheads are antiquarian relics of the Indians, before the great change in habits consequent on the introduction of the horse into South America. And in a footnote here, Azara has even doubted whether the pompous Indians ever used bows, and it's followed by a note from the editor. Several similar agate arrowheads have since been dug up at Chupat, and two were given to me on the occasion of my first visit there by the governor. R. T. Pritchett, 1880. End of chapter 5, part 2. Recording by Roger Turnell.